Welcome to the Living with Lymphoma podcast series, brought to you by the Lymphoma Research Foundation. I'm one of your hosts, Izumi Nakano. And I'm your other host, Victor Gonzalez. This is a series devoted to discussing matters important to those touched by a diagnosis of lymphoma. This episode of Living with Lymphoma will be discussing oral therapies and adherence. We're here today with our special guest, Jeff Grubbs, a CLL survivor who has graciously agreed to share his story and experience with oral therapies. We also have the expertise of Dr. Craig Portell of the University of Virginia. He's also one of LRF's research scholars, and he will be talking about the use of oral therapies to treat certain types of lymphoma. So thank you all for being here with us today. Um, I remember when I first started working for the foundation, I, well, one, didn't know what lymphoma was, um, but two, also thought that when you have cancer, you were treated with chemo and radiation and just thought that that was the treatment for, for everyone. Um, but obviously, as I slowly started to learn about the disease and the treatments, I realized that there are so many different types of therapies out there um, and so many drugs within those categories of therapies. Um, Dr. Portel, maybe you can kind of start us off by telling us more about what oral therapies are and, and how they're different from traditional treatment options. Sure, sure. Thank you for having me and uh, um, let me participate in this conversation. So um, oral therapies are um, uh, types of treatments for um, various cancers. They can range from a lot of different things. So there are some chemotherapies that we can give by oral um, route. Um, it really is uh, a mechanism of, of giving treatments um, that's easier than, than giving treatments in the infusion center through the vein. Most, however, of our targeted of our uh, oral agents are targeted therapies that don't necessarily kill the cancer cells, but actually slow their growth, um, if not allow the cells to stop growing and then ultimately die on their own. Right. And then there's also another class of um, oral therapies that um, modulate the immune system uh, or change the immune system so that your normal immune system can then go and attack the uh, the lymphoma usually with some other agents like rituxan or, um, or other um, immune modulatory agents that kind of help the, um, the, the oral pill work. Um, so there's many different varieties of oral pills. It's really um, oral therapies. It's really a way for us to, to make the treatment for lymphomas better and easier. Right. Is it used for every type of lymphoma or is it just certain types of lymphomas that can get oral therapies? So it's it typically um, is uh, it's only certain types. So there's some um, treatments um, for lymphoma that the conventional chemotherapy, immunotherapy given through the vein is the gold standard and go-to. So that's particularly true in the aggressive lymphomas like diffuse large B cell lymphomas. However, the more indolent or slow-growing lymphomas like uh, mantle cell lymphoma to some degree, CLL, marginal zone lymphomas can use oral therapies uh, very early on. And in fact, in CLL in the past couple years, um, we've really changed our paradigm from using chemotherapy at the very, very get-go, at the original diagnosis when it's time to start treatment, um, to switching to these more targeted agents, uh, which are have been shown to be um, better um, or per keep people in remission longer than chemotherapy alone. Um, so it's really changed the paradigm and how we treat, particularly CLL, and then uh, in the frontline setting. 
And um, for those of us that aren't familiar, what is CLL? I'm sorry. Yes, it's a chronic lymphocytic leukemia. So it's a, a, a type well, it's called a leukemia. It's it's really a lymphoma, as a lymphoma doctor would say. Um, so it's a it's a cancer of the immune system, cancer of the the B cells of the immune system. It can circulate in the bloodstream, which is where we usually find it, but it also really resides in the lymph nodes in the bone marrow, also. Um, so it's a uh, it's a uh, indolent form of non-Hodgkin's lymphoma um, that tends to circulate in the bloodstream, which is why we call it a leukemia. Um, but it really behaves more like a lymphoma. Okay. Um, I know that, uh, you know, the patients that we talk to on the helpline, they think, you know, my doctor is telling me that I should take these pills. Um, and they are always wondering, you know, is it as effective as treatments that we would receive if we went into the hospital to get therapy? Um, how would you respond to maybe a patient that came to you and, and was concerned about how effective a, an oral therapy is versus going into the doctor's office and actually getting their treatment? So one uh, misnomer in cancer care is that um, patients need to be in the hospital and very sick to get a cure for their disease. We're becoming increasingly convinced that that's not true. And sometimes um, going for the cure isn't necessarily the easiest way to, to treat the disease. Sometimes controlling the disease with these oral targeted therapies is better than using things like chemotherapy, which can make you quite sick. Um, so sometimes the goal is different. It just depends on the situation, um, I would say. So I would say in that situation, if, uh, if somebody came to, to me and asked me that question, um, I would say that it, they, oral therapies can be just as good, if not better, than some chemotherapies in certain situations, and your doctor would know uh, what those situations were. Right. That's great, Dr. Portel. I think that's really great background. Um, and, you know, Jeff, if might, I might ask you, you know, you've been diagnosed or were diagnosed with CLL and have experience with oral therapies. Um, before we get to your experience, I was wondering if you could share a little bit about your own story, you know, being diagnosed, what other symptoms you experienced, and what that was like for you. Well, I had never heard of chronic lymphocytic leukemia. I didn't know there was such a thing as a chronic cancer. Mm -hmm. And, uh, you know, feeling great, really happy in my life uh, in uh, lots of ways, um, physically fit, everything. Went in for a, your routine physical and after a process uh, ended up with uh, lymphoma. And when you hear the cancer word, uh, it's, it's, just a, it's, just a, it's just a shocker. I did the thing no one should do, but all of us do do, and that's hit Google. <laughs> right. So, you know, it took me a while to find the Lymphoma Research Foundation and other places of really solid information. But uh, after a while, I finally realized um, that, similar to what Dr. Portel just said, is this is a, this is a slow-growing disease. Um, it's real. It's not curable. Uh, people do die from it. I don't want to. I don't want to minimize it. But it's um, it, it's it's something that that some people don't ever require treatment for, and others uh, you know, have a difficult time, which actually ends up including me. Mm -hmm. uh, but at first, it was very hard uh, to figure this one out. Um, and at the time, this was 2009, 11 years ago, as we're having this, this discussion, um, at the time, uh, what was available 
was uh, first traditional chemotherapy, and the drug uh, that uh, my oncologist was talking to me about was one called bendamustine, uh, which is a derivative of a nerve gas invented by the East Germans in, in 1950. And it's really effective, but, but as a patient, it's, it's very, very <laughs> difficult to kind of contemplate you know, subjecting your body to this. I ultimately did have it, and it was fine. But uh, at that time in 2009, some of the targeted therapies we're talking about here didn't exist uh, in any way that patients understood them. I'm sure they were back in the laboratory and in preclinical studies or whatever, uh, but they sure as heck were not out there in a way that I could understand them. And at first, um, you know, my oncologist, um, who was quite qualified, uh, he was he was great, um, advised me the best thing to do was to not do anything uh, mm -hmm. and to let the disease take its course, uh, which was hard to understand first as a patient. Um, but the more I thought about it, the wiser that is. You know, if you allow yourself as much time as you can, the research moves and is moving fast. Um, and five years later, uh, when I did need treatment, when my disease advanced and got to the point where we had to do, we had to intervene, uh, those new drugs were just coming on the market. So, you know, for me, it's, I feel like I was sort of, <laughs> in some ways, diagnosed at a fortunate time. It was very difficult 11 years ago, but now, um, you know, so much is coming on the scene and the research has advanced so fast uh, that there's just, there's just a lot of hope in here. And I've had, I've had a bunch of these things, which we'll get into in a minute, but um, the transformation of the, um, of the kind of the medical picture that a patient gets here from your first uh, conversation where you're told you have cancer to now being told, as Dr. Portel just said, oh, we can manage this and we've got these different choices and things. I mean, it, it's a it's a it's a it's a huge change, you know, and that's all thanks to the advances in the research. Yeah, and we've certainly made a number of strides over the past few years, I think, especially in this uh, oral therapy space. Right. Um, and I'm wondering, Jeff, when you were first, or when you first had that discussion with your doctor about oral therapies, what was going through your mind? How comfortable did you feel with the idea? Um, and and what did your doctor share with you at that point in terms of how promising he thought it would be, if at all? Well, by this time, uh, some of the oral therapies were coming online. This is uh, 2015. Uh, they were coming online, and some had been approved uh, for patients that were relapsed and refractory, which means that that had a lot of lines, that they had a lot of treatments and they were not responding and things were looking pretty dim. Um, you know, some of these new drugs were available for those people, but for me, I was treatment naive. I hadn't ever had anything before. And the Food and Drug Administration had not yet approved any of these super duper new targeted oral agents for that purpose. So I was very excited about the research by this time. I, I just think it's so cool uh, what was what was happening on that front. Um, and so I uh, talked to my oncologist uh, and uh, found a clinical trial um, that included the new um, therapies. Um, the name was uh, was Idelalisib. Um, the the uh, trade name is Idelig. 
At that time, it had been approved for um, for relapse, refractory, second line kind of treatment. But they were trying to look to what would happen if they moved it to first line. So I was in a clinical trial that included, um, you know, the 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 1950s nerve gas, <laughs> a derivative, a bendamustine, a rituxan, which is the immune system uh, enhancer that, uh, that Dr. Portel mentioned. Uh, and then half the patients got, um, got a, a placebo, and the other half of the patients uh, got, uh, the, uh, got the trial drug, uh, idelalisib. Um, we figured out in about two days that I had the idelalisib because my body absolutely hated it. Um, and I had, a, I had a very, very strong reaction against it. Um, massive diarrhea, extreme pain, a trip to the emergency room, you know, passing out, that, I mean, passing out from pain and uh, a lot of liver uh, consequences I won't bore people with. Um, but it, it, my body really didn't like it. And here I am taking this traditional chemo and it was actually fine. <laughs> so... I was having trouble getting around all of this. Ultimately, I ended up failing. Uh, or I should say I couldn't tolerate uh, that trial drug, and we had to stop it. I did finish the traditional immunochemo uh, uh, therapy, um, which achieved a um, partial remission. I mean, I basically brought everything back to normal, felt fine again, and stuff like that. Uh, so that was good. But uh, almost immediately, I started relapsing again. The end of that story is uh, that other people besides me had a lot of difficulty with that drug uh, at, in the first line setting. And um, FDA, they withdrew it from the uh, from FDA application and, and you still can't use it. Right? <laughs> so in the end, I, I mean, for that purpose, for first line uh, treatment, it does serve a lot of patients well, I think, in other settings. But for me, I was in that clinical trial. I gave them a lot of data. It was all negative data. And you know what? If I had to do it again, I would do it again. I mean, how else do you advance the science, you know, unless you try something and find out how it works? And in this case, it didn't work out so hot, but uh, it did help understanding and it has, um, you know, advanced the science. And now people know what to make of this drug. And meanwhile, you know, I, I got a remission at the time. Yeah. No, and I think that was very well said. The idea that, you know, participating in a clinical trial is very important. I think Dr. Patel, you, you'd agree as well, right? Um, that's how we advance. Excellently said. Yeah. 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 Um, and, and I also imagine though, Jeff, that, you know, there was still a level of hesitation or, or doubts that you may have had um, when you had to consider your next line of treatment, right? Um, which I believe was also an oral therapy. Yeah, well, that gets a little complicated, and I don't want to spend too much time in this one because this is a broader subject than, than yeah. my particular case. Uh, but I did start relapsing right away, um, and um, and when I did, uh, I didn't need a treatment for the normal reasons, which are in the peripheral blood. You know, you don't, you really do wait until you need it just to avoid the toxicities, give science a chance to advance, and so forth. Um, but for me, my in my particular case, and this is extremely rare, um, it uh, my lymphoma moved out of my blood system and lymphatic system into my central nervous system uh, and caused blindness and uh, seizures. Um, and it's this is really uncommon, <laughs> um, but it took a little while to unscramble all of that. Uh, and when it came down to treatment, uh, we needed to intervene and intervene fast. I was blind, having you know had 
a lot of seizures. I wouldn't even go through all that. Uh, they're horrible. Uh, and um, we needed to intervene right away. And so we intervened with a classic um, chemo, you know, into the spine used for treatment of cancers in the uh, brain lining and elsewhere, uh, which was actually fine. Best chemo I ever had, actually. And um, but in addition, this is where the, uh, the, the new targeted oral agents come in, Victor. Um, in addition, it turns out, I don't know if it's designed this way, but it turns out that the particular drug that I was taking uh, at the time, ibrutinib, uh, crosses something called the blood-brain barrier, uh, which is a pretty formidable wall between your brain, which needs to be protected, and everything else in your body. And this drug crosses that. So this oral drug turned out to be an ideal uh, thing for me. So I took it in pretty high doses uh, to help minimize the CLL in my peripheral blood, as well as protecting me uh, in the central nervous system. So that's sort of how that leveled out was I was on, uh, I, I stayed on, I mean, I finished off the chemo stuff, but stayed on the, uh, the, the abrutinib is the oral drug for um, you know, for about a year or so before my body decided it didn't like that one. And, uh, but it was really effective. It brought it down, um, loved that stuff. Uh, and I mean, honestly, if I, if these drugs didn't exist, I mean, where would I be? You know, I, I wouldn't have a way of right. maintaining this uh, right. in some, I mean, and again, I don't want to dwell on me because the, the business with my disease moving the central nervous system is extremely uncommon, but for all of us with COL uh, and with other lymphomas, I mean, it, it, it's a it's a it's a huge step forward. Huge. It, it really is, is transformational for us. Right. You know, and I know you had a very special case, and you, you've kind of touched upon it, but you know, I think I'm really wondering, in your opinion, having been through what you've been through. What is the overall? You know, what are the overall pros and cons of oral therapies? You know, if you could go back. Um, would you do anything differently, knowing what you know now? Oh, good question, Victor. Um, well, first, no, because <laughs> I've had the alternatives, um, and they do work. I don't want to minimize chemo and, and the immuno um, modulators that Dr. Partell talked about. They, they do work, and you can tolerate them. It's, it's okay. But to be the whole idea of being able to take a pill or two a day uh, and um, – Go about your life and just simply not worry about things and to feel good. That that's that's a good thing, right? And as I personally hate uh, intravenous, um, you know, infusions. Had way too many. I don't care what it is; those things hurt. And um, I'm just glad not to have them. So to have the availability of these oral drugs um, was a was a convenience factor as well. You just take them and the morning and go on and pretend you just took an aspirin or something. It's not that, not that big a deal. It's, it's, it's like, what, when you start off with a, you know, with a nerve gas derivative <laughs> conversation and you end up with a, Oh, just take a little pill every day. It's like, I mean, just think about it. It's a huge change, Victor. Right. It's big. And if from the patient point of view, no, I wouldn't change a thing. Yeah. No, that's a great point. And not to mention the logistical aspect of, right, of having to go in for an infusion, how much time it takes. 
um, versus, you know, taking a pill, which, you know, of course, you, people might deal with side effects. You certainly had yours. So we, we won't want to sugarcoat the experience, everyone. But I think for a lot of patients, um, the idea of having it be potentially that easy is very attractive, right? Um, and kind of go about your life and, and whatnot. And Dr. Portel, how, how do you decide what oral therapy would be appropriate for a certain patient? Well, there are a lot available nowadays, um, and it really is very dependent on the disease, the um, patient characteristics, the patient's uh, lifestyle, um, how quickly we need a response. Some of our oral therapies will give a very quick response, and some will not give a quick response, but a more slow response, and it, it just depends on how how quick we need to, the, to get the disease under control. Um, so a lot of different factors actually play into that decision. And sometimes it's, um, it's uh, what we're able to get very quickly. Sometimes it's um, what side effects we're willing to accept versus other side effects we're not willing to accept. Um, sometimes those decisions are a, a, a big conversation in the clinic um, about what our different options are. And are there certain common side effects for all these oral therapies, or is it just obviously vary depending on what the drug is? Um, there's some general themes, I would say. Um, so, uh, you know, the, all, all cancer therapies cause some fatigue uh, to some degree. Um, I think that's kind of a, a standard. Um, a lot of these drugs do lower some of the blood counts, not quite to the effect that chemotherapy does. Um, there's usually some degree of um, stomach and, and bowel upset. Um, usually that's worse early on in the course of treatment. And the more you take the drug, the better off that kind of gets. Um, one of the more common side effects for uh, one of the more common oral therapies, abrutinib, um, can be bleeding um, and irregular heartbeat. Um, and those things can happen sometimes. They're, they're rare, but they can happen. Um, some of the other medicines can cause some headaches. Um, they, these are the different um, than your like blood pressure or cholesterol medicines, which typically are fairly well tolerated. These usually have some degree of side effect, um, and uh, it's it's managing those side effects and, and getting through them that that's the the uh, the big kicker. So, and would you need to give them additional pills then to? To help with some of those side effects, like the fatigue or the um, maybe nausea that someone might Yeah, have. sometimes we do need to give some anti-nausea medicine. Although, to the degree of chemotherapy in these, from a nausea perspective, these are much less nausea preventing or, or causing. So to prevent nausea is a little less of a problem. And again, the more you take it, the less the nausea becomes an issue. Um, and, and we're not really quite sure why that is, but it's pretty clear that uh, nausea gets better as you get months down the road. Um, right. And Jeff, was it was it hard for you to kind of keep track of the pills and, and what to take on a daily well, basis? Let me let me come back to that, Izumi. I just sort of want to sure. comment on the, on the side effects thing uh, and what uh, Dr. Portel was just talking about. Um, you know, from the patient end of these things, um, I guess what I have seen both with myself and lots of people I know that have lymphoma is is truly every patient is different. Yes. A lot of people can have exactly the same drug and have radically different you know, reactions to it. Like I described earlier, um, my you know, pretty intense 
um, bowel and uh, liver reactions to idelalisib. But I know people that you know, are still alive and have tolerated it really well for years. It's just very individual sort of stuff. Right. Which is great to say as a doctor, but as a patient, you're sitting there waiting to find out <laughs> which one might be you. Right? <laughs> it's hard to predict, too. So. You, go, you can only find out the hard way. That's all right. That's all. But generally, and I've had, I think, now a total of three of these targeted agents, uh, and all of them have had side effects. At the moment, I'm not in any because I haven't any of them. But mm -hmm. they, uh, but some of the things like Dr. Partell mentioned, the headaches, those can be extremely severe on um, one of the current drugs that's used that, that I've had, a calibrate uh, And I assume there's others as well. But in the case of that one, um, the answer is coffee in the morning. <laughs> <laughs> and I've got a friend that's also on uh, on that particular drug has had headache problems for years. But he really likes it because he now he now has two espressos every morning. Patient, <laughs> so you sort of find a way to adapt. I mean, it's the price you pay, uh, you know, in return for what you get. Uh, and if you have a constant level of protection in a really good quality of life, you know, a couple of cups of espresso. And I don't want to minimize. Sometimes these things could be bad, but I'm just saying, you know, sometimes as a patient, you really do find ways to cope with these and. It, you know, it, it's okay. It beats the heck out of the out of the side effects from the chemo. Mm -hmm. Eventually, the hope is, of course, that you'll also feel better, right? Because that means the therapy's working. Right. That's right. Now, yeah. Izumi, you also asked about sort of the um, the kind of way to maintain this. Is this the way you? Were, is that where you were going? Right. Yeah. No, that actually is an issue because these things are designed as maintenance drugs. And I'd love to hear, I don't know if it's now, probably later, but Dr. Patel, I'd love to hear you talk more about a future in which you don't have to maintain these things for your entire life. Um, you know, is there is there a time in which we could simply stop these little things? Um, yeah, I mean, I think that's something that we've, uh, we're looking at. And I, I think it just, uh, we're looking at how the deep level of remission that some of these drugs can give, some will do better than others. Um, and some do require continual maintenance therapy because, again, they don't kill the cancer. They, they kind of control it. Um, and we do worry if you – it's kind of like a break, right? If you, if you have the break on all the time, but then if you take the break away, then the, can, the cancer can accelerate a little bit. Um, that's what we worry about with some of them. Some of them – um, particularly venetoclax, I think, is the agent that the oral therapy now that we're we're thinking is is safe to stop. Um, it is uh, if it can get a deep remission, and then we can potentially stop for some time. In the short term, you know, one of the things that we, you know, as as a community, always concerned about is just the idea of adherence, right? Yeah mentioned like the, the the break part right so if you take your foot off the break what happens disease progression things like that potentially a negative outcome when you speak to your patients uh, who you prescribe oral therapy you know what do you tell them in terms of adherence and are there any tips that you share with them to um, i know it might be therapy specific but is there anything in general that you particularly highlight for them well that and that becomes part of the conversation about which ones to use right so if, if someone um feels that they can't quite manage to take two pills a day, then I'm gonna pick the one that's a one pill a day drug. Um, if someone 
Um, so that, that's the first thing is, is trying to make things simplified for the patient if possible. Um, some people are fine with two pills a day and feel like they can manage it very easily. Fine. Um, and some people can't, um, the other things that I kind of, uh, uh, mention is, you know, try to take the medicine at the same time every day. If when we start the medicine, it's, it's started in the afternoon, then we'll figure out a way to make it easy for you to remember it so that it's there on your daily routine. Usually, if it's a once-a-day drug, in the morning while you're uh, taking the rest of your medicines, brushing your teeth, et cetera, et cetera. Uh, sometimes we have to worry about um, taking food around the, the medicine, so we'll, we'll talk about that. Some of these require you to be without any food for 30 minutes or so um, after you've taken it. Um, and uh, we also talk about... Um, if you miss a dose, um, you know, that's okay. Life happens. Um, but then don't take double dose the next day because that can have some deleterious effects. Uh, remember, one of the problems with oral therapies compared to chemotherapies is when it's chemo, I'm directing the show and I'm administering chemo uh, treatment to you. When it's oral therapy, I'm, I'm trusting the patient to take their own medicine. So there's a bit of a trust there that we have to kind of come up with. Um, and and that's uh, those are things that we kind of kind of address. Yeah, that that's a great point, and I think it's important for patients to fully understand how important that is, right? Um, and you know, some of the ways that we at LRF try to help with that is through our very own Focus on Lymphoma app. There's a medication tracker there, um, and a number of medications can be tracked there, not just the oral therapy that you're on for your lymphoma, um, and you know of number of individuals found that to be helpful. And I think, you know, everyone is different, right? And has to figure out what their own um, strategy might be. And, and Jeff, I don't know if you had one in particular, just to remind you of your well, But A couple first, just to kind of echo your plug for the uh, you know, Focus on Lymphoma app, that, that thing is actually a really handy uh, app. I've used it many times. I know other patients that do as well. It does uh, give you a reminder at any time you want, like, you know, 11.04 a.m., it'll you know, give you, I mean, it'll give you the reminder um, that whatever you set for anything that you want, which is, which is great. Uh, but there's also you know, a direct line to lots of other sources of good quality information, that kind of thing. Uh, for myself, um, what I found was, I guess, a couple things. The first is when I first started at Brutinib, um, I got this unbelievable package from the manufacturer that included about maybe 12 different, even, yeah, it just had a, a whole lot of little gizmos, you know, for your wrist and for your bedside and when to put on top of the pill bottle and all these kinds of things that would remind you and just sort of had to pick what you wanted to do. I hate to say it, but what I ended up doing, which was my uh, kind of favorite way of, of keeping track, was I just kept the medication in, in the same place next to the sink and took it every day. And when I'd taken a pill, I turned it upside down. And uh, when, I, when I was done, you know, ready the next day, and I took another one, turned it right back up. And, and for uh, some of them, as Dr. Partell said, you have to take them twice a day. That was how it was with the calibrutinib. And so that you just kind of turn it upside down and keep, and so I could keep track of things just by the position of the medical, uh, the medicine bottle. That, that's how I did it. But people do find it. Uh, different ways of doing it. There are lots of little gizmos for doing it, uh, but focus on the lymphoma app is, is a good one. And let me ask you, Dr. Patel, I'm curious as a, as a clinician, what do you say to a patient when they come in and say, oh, I'm sorry, I've been really bad about taking this medication, or 
you know, oh, I didn't like it, so I stopped it. I mean, how do you respond to somebody that decides that they want to be their own doctor and don't do this medication as you would if you were giving chemo or something? Well, I think it, um, it, it first off, you got to try to figure out why, right? If, if someone doesn't like it for um, uh, a reason of side effects, then we can try to figure out a way um, to get around those side effects. Or sometimes we can even do some dose reductions. And a lot of times these medicines work just as well with some, some lower doses, particularly if it means not getting the medicine versus getting some of the medicine. Um, so it depends on the situation. Um, and, you know, there are times where, um, you know, cost is an issue with some of these medicines. These right. medicines are covered under a different part of the health insurance plans for most patients. Yeah. Sometimes cost is the barrier. Um, and um, I, I really try to let, try to understand that um, and try to get uh, various grants and things if we're able to do so. Um, uh, my, my university of Virginia, where I, where I work, we, we have a pretty good, uh, financial, um, uh, team that helps me through some of those processes. Um, so the, it, it all depends, you know, if it's truly intolerance, um, or people just can't manage it, then we got to figure out something else. Cause, um, uh, it, it is dangerous to take the medicine ad hoc. Um, it promotes resistance to some of these pills, um, and that can be dangerous for the cancer. Um, so we have to be careful in that manner. So there are times where we just have to say, you know, look, this isn't working. we got to figure something else out. And there are times when the disease will be well under control, um, hopefully if that's the case, for whatever medicines, and we the disease for a little bit and then make a decision later about what treatments we'll need. Something that, that Jeff, you mentioned earlier, um, about the the watchful waiting, particularly in CLL, um, the longer you wait, the more new things are coming out because this field has changed significantly. Even in the, all the other lymphomas, it's changed a lot in the last uh, several years. So if you can wait for a new therapy, it, it makes sense. Of course, if you need treatment, you need treatment. So. And I'm glad that you particularly mentioned the idea that you can modify a dose. And I think for a lot of patients, they might assume, oh, you know, if I don't do well or have side effects, the doctor might take me off the drug, which could, you know, in some people potentially affect um, communication with their providers of how they're feeling, right? We want to make sure um, that we don't encourage, we want to make sure that they do share how they're feeling. If they are experiencing symptoms, they can talk to their providers so that they potentially can have a dose modification and not get off the therapy, especially if it's working for them, right? Yeah, Victor, that's really, really important. I mean, if 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 I, one thing I can talk say to, to patients out there, if if you're struggling with the medicine, really talk with your doctor about why it is, and you guys can come up with a plan together and mm -hmm. to find something that that will work, um, that or or a modification to the current uh, regimen that that can make the symptoms better or uh, figure out a way to 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 keep on these medicines. They are important. Um, I know we t you talked about uh, when people miss a dose, um, but could you, and I'm sorry if you mentioned this already, but take a vacation from the therapy from maybe you're going on vacation and yeah. you're gonna be away for a while. So you, you wanna be off medication for, for that period of time. Um, we, we don't really like to do that um, if at all possible um, because uh, again, it's the starting and stopping sometimes with these medicines. You know, if you miss a dose here or there, it's not as big of a deal. But if it's an extended time frame, 
that does provide more opportunities for the cancer to, to change itself um, when it doesn't see the, the drug around. Um, so we prefer not to do that. Um, you know, is everything perfect? No. Um, you know, does it happen sometimes? Of course. Um, but, uh, you know, as long as we're talking about it, um, I, I think we could come up with a strategy to make it as, as helpful as possible. Um, but again, it, it's not something that's we'd want to do. So. I, I wonder if I might jump in here on this. Um, the, uh, the other, other little wrinkle on this has to do with, uh, with um, minor surgery or something else that you might need to do while taking these drugs, because I know the ones that I've had anyway, and I assume some of the others, have these side effects, including uh, excess bleeding. Um, they, they can cause problems uh, when you start whacking on the body with a knife. And um, in my case, it was uh, you know, just a, a crown and a, you know, just minor tooth stuff. But um, you know, for some people, it's like a knee replacement or things like that. And um, what I was told at the time, and, and Dr. Partell, maybe you can comment, it's, but I told the time is it was okay to stop like three days before, go ahead and let it cycle out of your body so you don't get excessive bleeding, do the surgery, and then give it another three days to let yourself recover and then start back up again without any adverse effects. Is, is that generally true? How does this work with patients that need, that really need yeah. it? Yeah. Yeah. So, so some of the drugs do cause some bleeding, and mostly it's the BTK inhibitors and the ones on the market are abrutinib acalabrutinib and zanubrutinib. Um, they're all different classes of the same drug. They can cause bleeding um, mostly by, it's kind of an aspirin effect. Um, so yes, we do recommend you stop the drug for a certain period of time beforehand and restart it a certain period of time later. And the period of time depends on how aggressive the surgery is. So like a crown would be three days, it'd be fine. Uh, a major knee surgery or back surgery, we probably would recommend you hold it for a week before and a week after. Okay. Um, so it depends on the severity of the surgery. Um, the other drugs are not as big of a deal for that. Um, although there are times when we can't, you know, if someone's truly sick, um, like from a pneumonia or something of that nature, sometimes it's hard to take the oral pills um, and we have to stop them just because we can't administer, people can't swallow for some reason. Um, and those are okay. Um, I think one thing we, we try to limit is just um, holding off on the medicine um, for reasons that are not medically needed, right? Because there are these medically necessary reasons to stop the drugs or pause the drugs for a bit. Um, but if we can limit the times where we don't, we're just, we're holding the drugs for non-medical reasons, um, then uh, we think that the disease will be better controlled. There's, there's obviously times where we're going to have to pause. Um, uh, and, you know, that is, it is true. Like as we said, Life gets in the way, um, and, and we will have times where um, it's just not worth it to take the drug. Uh, but if we can minimize those as much as possible, that's, that, that gives us more opportunities to treat on drug when we medically can't uh, as we go forward. But, and as a patient, sort of the takeaway to me is that, you know what, there's some flexibility here um, when life does intrude, and you've got to make some decisions. But the important part at least to me anyway, is to talk to your physician. You know, you, yeah. need, you need to be open about this and have a conversation because everybody is different. 
That, that's a great point, Jeff. And I'm wondering, you know, if you could extend on that, if there's anything else that you would recommend to patients who are considering an oral therapy or who are starting one, you know, something, some tips that you, you know, would feel would be helpful or would have been helpful for you when you were going through the beginning of this. But I don't want to uh, go back and figure out on my own history here on what I would have done under all these different circumstances. But but I will say uh, with what I've been through with three different ones of these things uh, and just having watched the science advance like it has is that first, um, it is a challenge. Uh, you really do need to be educated, you need to have some way of understanding what you're getting into because there are differences between these drugs. And Dr. Partel just mentioned it, you know, some cause bleeding and some do this and some have a potential for perhaps being able to stop one day and they fit in different circumstances um, for different lymphomas. So being as educated as you can be um, is the most important part for a patient just because it allows you to be an active part of the discussion with your physician. You're not just sitting here waiting to be told what to do. You can ask the questions and understand when they use words like, and you said it, Dr. Patel, BTK inhibitor. There's this jargon right. <laughs> jar you sort of get the hang of after a while. And the Lymphoma Research Foundation is actually really good at this stuff. Uh, they've got um, disease-specific um, you know, materials uh, in, on their website, lymphoma.org. Uh, for basically whatever you have, I'm just, my perspective is uh, CLL, um, and uh, that's not the easiest ride. But you know there are others that are more difficult, and others just everybody's different. And there are different kinds of materials on the on the LRF website uh, that can really help you be aware and educated as as a patient. And so the most important thing is is that. And the second thing I would say is ask questions. You know, don't go into this uh, just thinking it's too complicated. I can't do it. Understand this and ask questions. And if something doesn't go right, like Dr. Portal was just saying, you know, you're having a reaction or it's not fitting, or you're going to have to have surgery or whatever. You know, you need to talk about it. Uh, it need it needs to be a discussion. And, and I would add to that um, for what, what Jeff said, um, you know, if if um, there's been a conversation, you've done some research and still not quite understanding, don't don't feel bad about asking for a second opinion, too. Right. Um, yeah. You know, right. I I personally, if a patient asks me to get a second opinion, um, I'd be happy to recommend somebody. Um, I would love to hear what my uh, per other colleagues have to say about uh, a particular patient's case. Um, so that's a, it's an important part for, for both, both parties, honestly. So I, I, I get a lot out of a second opinion that my patient gets. Um, so I, 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 I really appreciate that. Yeah, I, I couldn't endorse that more. I think it's a wonderful point. And that's great to hear from you, Dr. Portel, because I know a lot of patients that call our helpline are scared. You know, they don't want to they don't want to hurt the feelings of their current doctor and, and question what their treatment suggestions are, or what they're saying. Yeah, never, never feel bad about asking for a second opinion, I would say. Um, always feel empowered by that. Um, and um, and sometimes hearing things and it's not it's not an insult. Sometimes just hearing things in a different manner really clicks. Um, and, you know, there are times when I'm seeing a patient for the first diagnosis and, you know, I'm telling them they have cancer and what we're going to do. And it's just a shock. And you just right. need to hear it another time with another opinion. And that I'm, that's completely fine. And Dr. Portel, what, what can you um, 
what can lymphoma patients hope for for the future of oral therapies? Well, boy, uh, the future is bright. Um, so uh, <laughs> there, there are a lot of different treatments, um, the oral therapies that are out there. Um, we will always have our chemotherapy or immunotherapy stalwarts. Um, there are some uh, lymphoma diagnoses that are cured with chemotherapy, um, and it's a short course of treatment, you're done. There are some that are not, like CLL, like Jeff has, um, others like mantle cell, marginal zone, some follicular lymphomas, that we're finding new ways of targeting different pathways. And uh, some of those are highly effective uh, with minimal toxicity. So what I would say is my hopeful hope in the future is that we find a way to give patients a break from these pills that have side effects, that we find new ways of, of targeting cancer. So when our current pills stop working, um, which they probably will over time, um, we have new ways of treating the cancer. And there's a lot out there right now that's really exciting. Um, uh, and I think the, the future also holds better ways of monitoring the disease um, that we can then feel more comfortable um, stopping a medicine whenever there's a really good remission or uh, we're at a good place with the disease, we decide to take a pause in treatment and then move forward with um, with observation again. Um, there's power in observation. And extending on that a little bit, you know, I think um, you mentioned earlier in the podcast that um, a lot of the oral therapies right now have been focused on the adrenal lymphomas. And I know just recently earlier this year, for example, we had a therapy called Selenexor approved for relapse refractory diffuse large B-cell lymphoma, right, which is aggressive. And I'm wondering, do you envision that being the case more often where we're starting to see them used more frequently in uh, aggressive lymphomas as well? Um, it's hard to say. Um, I, I think we've had a lot of promise with some of the um, oral therapies and the aggressive lymphomas. Um, that uh, when we've studied it, it's been a little bit disappointing. And I think that's because some of these lymphomas, there's some biology that we don't quite understand yet. Um, these tend to be a bit more complex cancers as opposed to the more indolent, slow-growing lymphomas, which tend to have a few mechanisms, a few pathways disturbed. So you just need to fix one and then it kind of gets better. Um, the aggressive lymphomas tend to have a lot of different problems with them uh, when they develop. Um, so targeting them with one targeted agent makes it a little bit more difficult. So we may be looking at multiple targeted agents. Um, and, and sometimes the, the oral immunotherapies, uh, the immunotherapy mechanisms can be helpful in those uh, uh, lymphomas like uh, lenalidomide or revlimid uh, is one of those um, that we sometimes use in those aggressive lymphomas too. Got it. Great. Well, uh, we looks like we've gotten to the top of the hour. Um, so I, you know, really wanted to thank both you, Dr. Craig Portel, and you, Jeff Grubbs, for um, being on uh, the, you know, this podcast with us. It's been a true pleasure talking to you about some of these uh, exciting new therapies that are coming online. Um, and we want to encourage any patients or uh, even caregivers of patients who are considering oral therapies who are starting them um, to contact us if they have any questions. Um, and we were happy to provide any resources, whether some of the ones that we shared already um, or others that we think would be helpful. Um, and they can do that by calling us at 1-800-500-9976 or emailing us at uh, helpline at lymphoma.org. 
Um, and once again, thank you very much. And uh, we encourage everyone to tune in for our next uh, Living with Lymphoma podcast. Thank you, Victor. Thank you, Azumi. Thank you. Thank you both. Thank you. It's been a been a pleasure. <laughs> Great. Best of luck, Jeff. <laughs> Dr. Ray. <laughs> Thanks, everyone.